Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. For today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Greg Backus, who is a postdoc at the University of California, Davis, in environmental science and policy, and Dr. Jason Delborn, who's an associate professor of science policy and society at North Carolina State University's Genetic Engineering and Society Center. They joined me to talk about gene drives, and in particular, threshold-dependent gene drives, which I'll let them define. Uh, but if you're looking for a more broad discussion about gene drives, I urge you to check out the episode of Bioscience Talks from 2016, uh, when we interviewed Joseph Travis and Jim Collins about the committee that's actually mentioned in today's show. But for now, let's get to today's episode. Doctors Backus and Delborn, thank you very much for joining me today. Hi there. Thank you for having us. Okay, so we're going to be talking a little bit about gene drives and specifically threshold-dependent gene drives. But before we get into all of that, I wanted to take a step back and just talk about gene drives in general a little bit for those of us who are less familiar with the concept. So can you give us a brief overview? So gene drives are genes that um, are inherited at over 50% ratios, whereas normally any gene that you might have in past year offspring, there's going to be about a 50% chance that that gene is going to be inherited. And then a gene drive is just sort of inherited at higher ratios than that, sometimes upwards of 90, close to 100%. And some of them exist in the wild, for example, a uh, T haplotype in mice, but some of them are synthetic gene drives that we've recently been thinking about engineering, for example, a uh, homing endonuclease or recently popular is the CRISPR-Cas9 gene drives. And I guess the uh, a lot of the interest in them is that if we take this extra Mendelian inheritance, it's uh, greater than 50% inheritance, and we combine that gene with some gene that we might want to introduce into a wild population, um, we can have that gene spread through that population a lot better than if we were to just release it on its own. For example, um, if, say, we find a gene for malaria, from malaria resistance in a mosquito, um, and we want all mosquitoes to be resistant to malaria, um, we could just release that gene. We could engineer a mosquito to carry that gene and release it into the wild. But inevitably, that's only going to have a 50% inheritance ratio, and therefore, it's not really going to spread through the population. Um, if we combine, combine that with the gene drive, then that should, um, with higher inheritance ratios, spread to the population a lot better. So this is the case in, in which you're basically, you know, kind of stepping on the gas a little bit with the inheritance system so that something is more likely to be spread in a population, um, you know, a, a genetically engineered trait for our purposes mostly, um, than it would be otherwise. Exactly. And in fact, it even allows you to spread a trait that would be that would reduce the fitness of the organism. So this is one of those situations where evolution gets turned on its head a little bit. We can drive a trait that's deleterious to a population of organisms through a population, even if the fitness cost um, would otherwise make that trait disappear. So one of the strategies considered for gene drives is in the suppression of pest populations. And so we can drive a trait, or theoretically we could imagine driving a trait through a pest population that would suppress that population over time. And even though that trait reduces the fitness of the organism, it would be passed on um, more frequently than if there was no gene drive attached. 
Okay, why don't we just take a quick example to make sure I've got it. Um, let's say that you have a population of wild mosquitoes that are transmitting malaria. So you genetically engineer in the lab a gene drive um, mosquito population that has a trait that causes them to not transmit malaria. And you would expect this trait, once those mosquitoes are released, to you know overtake the population because it's related to the gene drive that is inherited at a higher rate than you would normally have in a wild population. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, you know, ha have these been tested out in any wild populations as yet? No, they haven't. Um, there has been uh, research that's been done in laboratories to test whether um, a synthetic gene drive um, or a naturally occurring gene drive uh, works over a number of generations. But all of the testing has been done within laboratories. Um, some groups are starting to imagine um, how might they pursue a field trial experiment, uh, but none of those experiments have been carried out um, in the wider environment. Okay, and moving on to your article specifically, you discuss threshold-dependent gene drives, and I'm just hoping you can give us a little bit of a clue into you know, how those are different from the gene drives we've been talking about so far. So uh, a threshold-dependent gene drive is one that if you release it into a population at a relatively small frequency, um, you wouldn't expect that gene drive to actually spread through the population. Whereas if you release it above some kind of threshold in that population, you expect it to be at a certain point where it can spread through the population until it reaches fixation. Um, so 100% of the eventually, 100% of the population will have that gene. So the idea here is this sort of gene drive um, should be relatively localized in that if you release a large number in one location, um, then it will spread in that one population that you want it to spread in. But if one or two of those, um, whatever organism spreads into a neighboring population where they might not want that gene drive, uh, Presumably, it should be below that threshold and not spread in that population. Okay, and what specifically will render a given gene drive more likely to be threshold dependent uh, than you know a, another type? You know, is it is it simply a question of the rate at which it's reproduced in offspring, or are there other factors at play as well? So, a major component that's common in a lot of these threshold dependent gene drives is that the homozygote, um, the, so any organism that has two copies of either the wild type or the gene drive, um, they're going to be, they tend to be more fit than their heterozygote counterpart. Um, and so this might make sense in the context of the gene drive we talk about as an example in this paper. Um, the Medea gene drive, um, maternal effect dominant embryonic arrest. It's just a backronym that refers to Greek mythology. But the main idea is that the any mother that is carrying this gene drive, this Medea gene, um, it will create a toxin. And then also the embryo that carry the gene drive, they will create an antidote for that toxin. And therefore, that means that any embryo that doesn't carry that, that gene drive will not have that antidote, and therefore they won't be able to develop and survive throughout the, that process. And 
the thing is this media tends to also, especially in the cases that we're talking about, um, give some kind of fitness cost to the organisms that are carrying it. So what happens is that it becomes better to, if there are a whole bunch of media genes in a population, it's better to have that media antidote if you're an offspring and therefore eventually that should spread through a population um, compared to if it's relatively, if there are only relatively few of them in the population, those few are going to have a fitness disadvantage and therefore not be able to spread. Okay, so the idea being that this sounds to me like a, a potential you know, mechanism for control, because obviously when you talk about gene drives and releasing uh, genetically engineered species out into the wild, uh, there's some anxiety about it spreading uncontrolled. Um, and I'm sure there's also some anxiety about it's not working at all um, if it, the gene drive isn't able to establish and become fixated. So is this a case you know, in which you then have a mechanism of you know, potentially controlling uh, the spread of the gene drive so that you could only have it exist in certain populations where you released a, you know, a bunch of samples with, you know, that trait. Um, d- does it give you an avenue to do that? Exactly. Uh, and there's, you know, if you imagine it this way, that if you were to release, you know, a mix of gene drive organisms into a wild population, if the gene drive organisms mate with each other, those, those offsprings are successful. If the wild types mate with each other, those are successful but the hybrids or the heterozygotes are, are likely not to survive. And so if you imagine that if you were to introduce, you know, a great number of gene drive, drive organisms into the population, they would overwhelm that other wild population over time. Um, and so the, the, the control aspect here is that if you are above that threshold and what, what I just described is almost kind of a 50% threshold, you would be, be likely to see the gene drive go to fixation but below that threshold, you would likely to see it um, essentially disappear over time. Um, and with a, with a conventional gene drive that's not threshold dependent, um, the excitement, but also the fear, is that even an sm- introduction of a small number of organisms could drive that trait to fixation in a, in a very large population. So rather than you know, instilling malaria resistance in a local population of mosquitoes uh, where you have a malaria problem, you instead would, you know, have that gene drive potentially spreading to, you know, every mosquito of that species on the continent or something like that. I think only in extreme cases would it ever reach that far, but that the general idea is it would reach beyond that original population in the first place. And the reality is we really don't know how gene drives would behave in these larger environments, you know, across, uh, regional or continental or global scales um, that that work just hasn't been done and to even do the work is you know potentially um, risky if, if we don't know what's going to happen so you know we do have evidence that gene drives seem to break down over time even in laboratory studies um, that's the case and so there is an interest in making them stronger to drive through populations um, but we we don't know exactly how they would behave um, over continental or global scales Okay, and moving back to the threshold-dependent gene drives, you know, is that the same case with them as well? You know, is this something where, um, you know, we can expect them to be more controllable, or is that a dynamic that is yet to be explored? So among many of the gene drives that have been proposed and thought about over the years, um, threshold-dependent gene drives do seem like one of the more controllable, sort of, in quotes. Um, but 
the issue here is more that if we oftentimes when we are we are modeling these gene drives or thinking about these gene drives, we they tend to have two relatively default assumptions when we're thinking about them. They have a that inheritance advantage that we think about that greater than Mendelian inheritance ratio, but b they also have some kind of ecological disadvantage, um, whether we are introducing, no matter what gene we're introducing, there's probably going to be some kind of fitness cost associated with manipulating the genome to some extent. And sort of combining those two ideas, we sort of have this interplay between wanting to make sure this inheritance advantage is relatively high so it can spread better um, and we want to lower that ecological disadvantage to have it spread better but at the same time the higher those either of those two advantages are um, the uh, sort of more likely this gene drive is going to spread and I guess where this comes into play with the threshold dependent gene drives is both of those both of those uh, inheritance and ecology can can change that where that threshold actually is whether I mean Jason said earlier 50 I don't, he didn't actually mean a 50% threshold when he said 50% um, but more that uh, that threshold can change what that percentage is depending on the ecological context of whatever ecosystem we're at or or sort of the behavior of the organisms in that ecosystem and if we sort of start with the, that default assumption that any of these organisms carrying the gene drive are going to have a pretty big ecological disadvantage, in that case, we are more likely to assume these gene drives have a higher threshold and therefore are less likely to spread. So I guess what we're trying to get at in this paper is more that what if we sort of remove that assumption of an ecological disadvantage. And even if there's only a small percent of the chance that there can be some kind of minor ecological advantage, even for a small amount of time in the short term, the thing is these organisms were releasing thousands, hundreds of thousands maybe um, into the wild, and each of them is going to have their own unique biology um, and we're releasing them into a bunch of different populations, each with their own ecological aspects. And that just gives us a whole bunch of unknowns. And therefore, if randomly, sometimes we have these small advantages, will that sort of be enough to push the gene drives over that threshold? And I think this, this work is a great example of how modeling of gene drives is a really important part of the research process. Um, so as I said before, you know, we haven't attempted to release gene drive organisms into the environment to see, just to see what happens. Um, but there's been a lot of really careful and, and thoughtful modeling done. And, and what Greg did as a graduate student at NC State was to think beyond just a very simplistic model of a threshold dependent gene drive and start to, to explore the kinds of uncertainties that emerge when we think about relative ecological fitness of the drive and the different strength of the drive 
and different migration uh, rates or patterns that might happen between populations. And as a modeler, Greg is able to manipulate those variables and find out that, you know, this idea of a very clean threshold where if you're below, you're safe, and if you're above, you're spreading in a way that you don't want to, um, that we can't be so certain of that boundary. Um, the modeling suggests uh, that, that small changes in ecological fitness or in migration patterns, for example, could move a drive that was meant to spread only locally. It could make that drive a drive that would potentially spread much more broadly than you intended. Um, and that's really the, the brilliance of the kind of modeling work that Greg and, and his colleagues have done. Okay. And I'm going to take a stab in an example of that. And then I suggest you to completely set me straight because it's probably going to be utterly wrong. Um, but, but let, let's, uh, let's have a go at it and then we can fix it. Um, so let's say that you had a gene drive that you intended to be only localized because you were um, just targeting one population that was of mosquitoes, let's say again, that was spreading a disease. Uh, so you release this uh, threshold-dependent gene drive in this population. You um, ensure that you release enough organisms uh, so that it will be above threshold in this local population. Uh, you don't expect it to spread according to your modeling, but then perhaps say the you know the target population has a trait uh, that you know confers it some um, you know fitness advantage. It's uh, it's it's a little faster at flying. But when these uh, when these individuals migrate and interbreed with um, another near local population, the gene drive could spread because it's linked with a trait that confers a fit advantage. Yeah, that's more or less the idea of why we want to think about the sort of broader scale of ecological uncertainty. Um, in that case, the if there is some kind of gene that say, as your example, makes the mosquito fly a little faster or whatever, um, likely that won't be tied to the gene drive itself. So it wouldn't necessarily last as giving that gene drive an advantage overall, but especially when we're thinking about these threshold-dependent drives, that might be enough to at least get that gene drive over the threshold. So it's more of a that little transient advantage could end up with longer scale consequences. Okay. And then I wonder, you know, from sort of a, a real world perspective and, you know, those who are exploring the possibility of using gene drives to do things that may be highly adv advantageous for human populations, you know, what does that increased uncertainty mean? You know, does that mean that we should place a moratorium on the, um, you know, release of any type of gene drives into, you know, the environment? Or does that mean that this should simply be carried out with a more thoughtful uh, planning procedure? You know, what are the kind of the implications of that type of work? So in terms of implications, uh, you know, I think uh, our results are, are similar to the kinds of conclusions that uh, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine Committee came to in 2016. I served on that committee um, and we, we recommended a cautious approach um, to think about a kind of staged process for understanding how gene drives behave, you know, in the laboratory, in contained feed field trials, um, in places where there would be an isolation of the population. Um, we clearly need to understand more about gene drives before we're uh, deploying them into the environment um, for, for particular purposes. Um, a, a moratorium on research would mean that we would stop learning about them. Um, and so then we wouldn't be able to understand um, the potential benefits of this tool or even its risks. 
um, I think there are ways, um, you know, if, if you look at our particular case of looking at um, threshold drives, we can imagine that I think part of the message of our paper um, is that if, if scientists are designing a threshold drive, um, we need to be careful not to build the drive to be behaving very close to that threshold. We want to build in margins of safety um, because we want to understand the way that particular kinds of uncertainties and surprises might shift the behavior of a drive um, to be slightly different than our models. Um, that doesn't mean that we can't be, we couldn't be extremely confident, for example, that a particular drive that was designed would behave um, in a threshold-dependent way. Um, but it does mean that we need to be careful uh, not to be operating too close to that threshold where a drive either fails unexpectedly or is more successful than we wanted it to be. Um, and so I think our paper calls attention to you know, basically the risk of trying to thread the needle there. So it's just a case where a little bit of additional care needs to be exercised rather than a case where, uh, you know, we need to really completely pull back the reins. And I think, it, you know, in addition, it also points to particular things that we need to pay attention to. So the kinds of relative ecological fitness of neighboring populations of organisms matters. Um, the kinds of ways that, that we might predict a change in ecological fitness um, with the gene drive trait. Um, paying attention to migration patterns of organisms between environments. Um, those are the kinds of things that our paper suggests that we need to pay attention to um, in that sort of strategy of being cautious. And that makes quite a bit of sense. Now, um, it might be helpful to, to give a little bit of color around the types of gene drives um, that might exist in the, in the you know, environmental populations. We've, we've spoken already about uh, mosquitoes quite a bit, but, but what are some potential uses of gene drives and threshold-dependent gene drives specifically um, you know, that we might be encountering over the coming years? So broadly speaking, um, there's a number of different you know, ways that we might apply gene drives. Um, in, in populations, uh, for, for controlling populations or changing populations. I'm involved in two projects um, right now, or affiliated with two projects. One of them is looking at the potential to uh, build a gene drive mouse um, that would turn a population of mice to be all male or potentially all female and crash the population. Um, and the, the reason to explore this possibility is that uh, invasive mice and other, t and other rodents, rats as, as well, on, on oceanic islands are a major threat to biodiversity. Um, and so rats and mice have been uh, really a threat to many endangered species on oce oceanic islands. And so the idea is, you know, could we build a gene drive mouse that could be released on an island that would then in a few generations uh, crash that island's population because it would turn all single sex and be unable to reproduce. One of the concerns around that strategy is, you know, what happens if a few of those mice get to a neighboring island or get to a mainland. Um, and so here, this, this just remains a theoretical possibility, but if you imagined a threshold-dependent drive instead of um, you know, a continuous drive, um, you might imagine that then the, the risk of having a couple of you know, individual mice escape onto a neighboring island wouldn't then transform that neighboring island's population. Um, so that's one way that the threshold-dependent drive could be important. Um, I've also done some work um, looking at an, an agricultural pest that's invasive in North America, the spotted wing Drosophila, um, and that's an agricultural pest that is threatening uh, berry production and other um, soft fruits uh, in a number of different agricultural environments across the United States. It's an invasive pest, 
um, and it's really had a major impact on production. Um, and classic kind of pesticide use uh, or pesticide applications haven't been sufficient to control that pest. Um, and so one of the things being explored, there's a number of different kinds of genetic approaches being explored in this project. Um, and one of them is the potential to use a gene drive. Um, and one, again, one might imagine um, that while, you know, some people may advocate for eradicating this fly from all of North America um, and thus, you know, not wanting to, to have a threshold dependent drive, others might imagine that at least, especially at first, we might want to do more experimenting with drives that would have some sort of localized uh, characteristic. And so a threshold dependent drive would enable you, for example, to release um, you know, a gene drive spotted wing drosophila to uh, eliminate a pest in, in a particular area or small region if you were able to release enough to go above the threshold, but that that population then wouldn't spread across uh, the landscape indefinitely. Okay, that's perfect. Um, and so, you know, I think that gives us an exciting look at, you know, the work that we'll be seeing more of going forward. Uh, and I'd just like to thank both of you very much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences, and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.